Good afternoon. My name is Luke. I'm one of the ministers uh, here at the church, and it's good to see all of you today. Even though we have uh, m- many of us gone, our, our, our regular lead uh, minister is is away on holiday for a few weeks, and we're excited to have him back in a few weeks. But in the meantime, you have me here, and I think Ian Fenton. Uh, me this week and next week I'll be preaching, and then Ian Fenton. And then uh, I believe Ian Jones will be starting a series on the book of Titus for us uh, in, the, in the month of September. If you drive, oh, I, I should say before I, before, before I get going, uh, our, ser- our sermon series that we're doing this summer is on the most popular verses in the Bible, uh, the most g- searched uh, verses in the Bible uh, in kind of a global search. And one of those is Philippians 4.13, which if you're not familiar with Christianity, may not be incredibly familiar. But if you are, you probably have heard, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, and so we are looking specifically at that verse this evening, but hopefully we're going to be putting it in context. If you drive about 12 miles north on the M1 motorway, you'll find a relatively unimpressive Boots, the chemist shop. It's on Cheapside Street in the, in the town center of Barnsley. Here, I'll show you a picture. Now, that, that might seem like an incredibly useless piece of information, but in fact, one of the most extraordinary, one of the most extraordinary Christian figures to ever come from England was born in that precise location. He was a South Yorkshireman. His name is Hudson Taylor. A simple South Yorkshireman. A son of a simple chemist, in line with the boots there. He was born in that location, and at the age of 20, he packed up his bags to share the good news with the people of China. It's 1850, actually 1852 to be precise. This is a hundred years before communist China is officially open to the West. And after Taylor had lived there for 50 years of his life, from 20 to 70, he left an imprint, his life and ministry left an imprint for Christianity in China that probably will, will never be paralleled again. He founded the China Inland Mission, which at the end of his life had over, 12, sorry, had over 200 local missions in China, had over 800 missionaries recruited, and had over 125,000 Chinese Christian converts. I'd call that success on the mission field. But I don't really want to talk about his missionary success today. I'd rather talk about his journey. While in China, he encountered severe illness. He contracted several diseases. At the age of seven, he, or at, sorry, not at the age of him being seven, he lost his son at the age of seven, and then his wife quickly after that in China. And after that, he experienced long periods of intense despair and depression. He lost close friends, his closest friends in the world on the mission field. He had seasons of loneliness. The Chinese government was often opposing his work. He, he had years and years of not knowing where uh, his financial support would come. How do you do that? From the ages of 20 to 70, without giving in and without giving up hope? How do you keep that kind of joy in Christ, sustained in the mission field, separated from a common culture, with all of that? That's the question I was asking this week as I was reading this passage. How did he remain content and joyful in Christ? Well, there's a famous book 
about Hudson Taylor, written in 1932 by his son and daughter-in-law. You may have heard it because it's a famous book and it's called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. What was his spiritual secret to a lifelong of success in ministry, contentment? To quote his book, in every situation he drew upon the fathomless wealth of Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter that we were just reading from a few minutes ago, was also a missionary, long before Taylor. He also, like, like Taylor, had incredible success in ministry and incredible su- suffering in ministry. And he also had a spiritual secret. Philippians 4, verse 12, if you could look down at the Bible. He says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, those are the four verses that we're going to be looking at particularly tonight. Paul tells us the secret to steadfast, enduring joy in Christ that will transcend any and every situation. Okay, but before we get into this, we should ask, we're not there yet. What's going on? What's going on in this book or this letter to the Philippians? The Apostle Paul is the author of this letter, and he is at this point in, in the letter, or in his life, he's in prison in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And he's in prison, of course, because he's been preaching the, the gospel. And one day, probably to his great surprise, and, and certainly to his great joy, his old friend shows up, named Epaphroditus. Now, in the, you, have to remember, you have to understand something about the Roman uh, prison system here. Uh, you weren't supported, as a prisoner in the Roman Empire, you weren't supported, you weren't taken care of, you weren't fed and clothed by the tax-paying citizens of the Roman Empire, okay? If you were going to live and if you were going to survive in prison, you had to survive by other people, friends and family, supporting you while you were in prison. They weren't giving you food from the taxes, okay? That had to come. You had to self-fund while in prison, why it was such a horrific system because you didn't have friends and family you were up a creek so Epaphroditus Epaphroditus had come from this church all the way in Philippi Philippi is modern day Greece and he came very good news to Paul you see Epaphroditus told Paul that the Philippian church had been holding fast to the gospel even in incredible persecution they were holding fast to the gospel that Paul had originally preached to them. Paul had been instrumental in planning these churches. And so they're thanking Paul through Epaphroditus for all the sacrifices that Paul made to give them the gospel. And as a symbol of their thankfulness, they sent with Epaphroditus an incredible financial gift so that Paul could remain sustained while he was in prison. And so this letter in the book of, in this Philippian letter that we're holding today in our hands that Paul wrote is his response to the Philippians. He sent it back with Epaphroditus saying, thank you for all that you've done for me. Thank you for supporting me so that I can stay alive. And thank you for holding fast to the gospel. You've, you've given me so much joy. You can see this in verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Paul has joy in the Lord because of their support, their financial support. But here's the key. This is, this is where, this is where the, the passage turns. He does not want them to misunderstand him. 
He does not want them to think that his joy in the Lord is in any way dependent upon them or that his joy in the Lord is dependent on having some amount of money or certain amount of circumstances. He wants them to know that he is content in the Lord no matter what. If he's in prison with nothing, or if he has every comfort known to man, he is content in the Lord. Paul's main point is found in verse 11. I am not saying this because I am in need. Right here. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So notice this. What does Paul's secret, his spiritual secret, produce in him? Contentment in any and every situation. And that's going to be our first point today, what Paul's secret produces. Contentment. Now, because this talk is really, the theme of this talk is about contentment, uh, we want to. I want to first just talk about what is contentment in the Bible, and we're going to unpack that in the first in the first half of the sermon, really. So we're going to first look at it by what contentment is not, and then what contentment is. But now, if you're anything like me, a talk about contentment probably doesn't sound like something that's going to particularly particularly stir your soul. I, I don't think my generation particularly values the virtue of contentment. And I think that's because many of us think of it kind of like the word settling. To settle, that word is like horror to a millennial's ears. I mean, I'm sure you've heard these phrases. Don't settle for that job. Don't settle for him. Trust me, you can do better. Poor girl, I just think she's settled for that kind of life. In my generation, at least, to settle sounds like you've given up. You've got, you've got no purpose or no adventure. It's like you're going nowhere in life. That's what it sounds like. Well, if you're, if you're tempted to tune out because that's what you're thinking about contentment, I, I'd encourage you, that's a million miles from what Paul means in these verses. Now, the word translated contentment here is actually a Greek word called autarkes. Now, I rarely, I don't think I've ever brought up a Greek word in one of these talks. But sometimes, just every, every great so often, sometimes a Greek word is so loaded with meaning that you just can't possibly understand it with a sing, simple English word. And I think that's this word, autarkes. This word is almost never used in the New Testament. But for a group of ancient philosophers known as the Stoics, you've probably heard about them, autarkes was considered the chief of every virtue. You probably know what it means for someone to call you stoic, right? What does that mean? Oh, he's aloof. He's a bit cold. He's emotionless. Not easily bothered. For the ancient stoics, the ideal man or the ideal woman was someone who was entirely autarkes, self-sufficient. Unmoved by either the fortunes or the chaos that came from external circumstances. The content man, the happy man, was someone who was a self-contained being. He needs no one else. He needs nothing else outside of him for happiness. He is like this contained being. The world can be going mad or the world can be going great outside of him, but it doesn't bother him because he's self-contained. He's self-sufficient. He's almost boarded off from the rest of the world. His inner strength is found within him. That's Autarchus. Contentment here. Okay? It shows up all over the place in this ancient Stoic literature. 
self-reliant, self-empowered, unmoved by tragedy and trial, emotionally numb to pain. You know, it is remarkable to me as I was studying this, though, that this old Stoic idea of contentment isn't actually that foreign today. I mean, there's no Stoic philosophers running around. But just open a self-help magazine or turn on the telly for an hour, and you're going to probably hear a fairly consistent message. All you need is yourself. Three ways to feel more self-empowered. And it's a twist on that same message, isn't it? You are all you need. You have all the resources inside yourself that you need to survive and thrive and flourish. That's not what Paul means by contentment. Paul takes this stoic word and he flips it upside down. He flips self-sufficiency to Christ-sufficiency. For Paul, contentment is not rooted in you being this independent, isolated, emotionally numb person. It's, it's rooted in your dependence upon God. Verse 13, I can do all this through, through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's not saying, I can handle beatings and hunger by just stiffening up my upper lip. I mean, that's, that's one way to contentment, right? I'm going to be content. I'm going to be unmoved by the, the environment around me by stiffening up my upper lip and becoming emotionally numb to pain. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying I can deal with loneliness and loss by finding the resources in myself. He's not saying that. In fact, he's admitting he doesn't have the resources in himself. But Christ does. And Paul, of course, this is what, something you have to understand about Paul. Paul fundamentally sees himself as a man in Christ. What, what Christ has, Paul has. And so you can see why it's so important that Taylor said what he drew upon was the fathomless riches of Christ, right? Because if Christ has the fathomless riches and Paul is a man in Christ, Paul has that. He has what Christ has. Okay, but we still haven't answered, what does Paul mean by contentment? We've talked about where it comes from. It's not from inside of you. It comes from outside, in Christ. But for Paul, contentment is a settled joy in Christ. You could say happiness in Christ, regardless of your circumstances. Okay, why? Why does Paul call contentment, or why am I saying for, for Paul, contentment equals joy in Christ? Let me unpack this. Start in verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. Paul is writing this letter for one, for this section of the letter for one reason. He wants them to know his, that his joy, and not some abstract joy, it's a joy in the Lord, is not dependent on their financial gift. Okay? And so, and then he goes on to talk about how he's content in every circumstance. So what he's doing is he's exchanging joy in the Lord for contentment. They're interchangeable. And not even that, not only that, Philippians is really a letter all about joy. Paul brings up this word, joy or rejoice, 14 times in a short letter. In fact, it's his, when he gives his final exhortation to these Philippians, this is what he says in chapter 4, verse 4, another very famous verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Paul's saying, Philippians... If you get one thing, you know, one thing from this letter, one thing from this sermon, if you get one thing from this letter, Philippians, get this, be happy in Christ. 
So, let, let's, let's review. What we, contentment is not found by gritting your teeth. Contentment is not found in the absence of grief. That's very stoic. Contentment is not found in the absence of feelings. It's not found in indifference or apathy to the world around you. Contentment is the, is the true happiness that comes from having Jesus as your deepest, most unshakable treasure. Another way of understanding contentment, at least in the Bible, is by looking at its opposite. In the, in the Bible, what's opposite of contentment? It's coveting. Covetousness Covetousness is so foundational to our sinful human nature, you even find it right in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To covet is to say this, I won't be happy, I won't be satisfied until I have that, whatever that is. That's what coveting means. I won't be happy, I won't be satisfied until I have that. And coveting is really not this kind of outward act. That's why it's kind of shocking to find in the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments are very concrete, not abstract things like don't steal, don't murder. You can see people stealing, you can see people murdering, but you can't see someone covet. It's, it happens in the heart. It, it's, it's, it's at the core of who you are. It's a, it's a motivational kind of thing. It, it gets the levels of your, your motivations. And really, it comes at the end of the Ten Commandments because it's the flip side of idolatry. Idolatry is at the the top end. Don't worship anything except for God. But coveting is, coveting is the opposite of worshiping God as your ultimate treasure. It's saying, I need something other than God that God can't give me. I need something other than God to fill and satisfy me. Coveting is the opposite of contentment because when you covet, you're saying God can't make me happy but this created thing can. So where do you go for filling? Where do you go for that kind of ultimate happiness, for contentment? These are the kinds of things I've heard in my office. These are the kinds of things that I've felt. If I could just have a few nice vacations, then I'd be content. If I could just have sex, I'd be happy. If my salary could just be about 50,000 pounds, then I'd be set. If I could just have that family instead of my family. If, If our church could just get to this size, then I'd be satisfied. There's one that hits home. If I could just be like that person, then, then I'd, that, my life would be great. Whatever that thing is, that you are pining for in order to bring yourself fulfillment, happiness. Here's the thing. That thing will actually rob you of contentment. It's like a bitter bait and switch. Not because the thing is evil in itself. None of those things that I just mentioned are evil. All those things are good gifts of God. But the gifts, the gifts of God, right, are designed by God in order to point your love to the giver of the gift. But what happens when you covet? 
When you covet your love and your joy, they latch onto the gift. And instead of using that gift as a reflection to point your love and your, your admiration and your worship to the giver, you, you don't, it's not a reflection of the giver. What you do is you latch onto that as if it's God and you hope that you, you expect it to give you ultimate happiness and satisfaction. But it never does because it can't. And then you're discontent. But if you treasure Christ, you can be content with nothing. And you can be content with everything. And isn't that Paul's point? Point number two, contentment in the bad times. That's actually quite a bad, that's, that's a pretty un, uh, uninspiring point there. Maybe I'll put it this way. Joy in Christ when life falls apart. That's what Paul is modeling, and that's what he wants the Philippian church to have. Joy in Christ when life falls apart. Verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So Paul's inner joy and happiness in Christ remains steadfast in need in hunger, in want. I think, and I think it's fair to say that Paul experienced a lot more suffering and loss and heartache than probably anyone in this room. Let, let, me, let me read for you a description of Paul's life that he gives of himself and his life and ministry, okay? This is Paul's bio line at the end of his, uh, his blog articles, okay? It comes from 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. Five times... I received from the Jews 40 lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. When Christ is your treasure, all the treasure this, treasures of this world can be taken away. And you can remain content. But if your house is your treasure... That can burn down. If your treasure is your job, you can lose it in an instant. If your health is your treasure, that can go in one doctor's appointment. Christ is the one treasure that can never be taken from you, right? That's why Paul can endure untold loss and all this suffering and continue that, and because his ultimate joy and singular anger can never be taken from him. It's Christ that can never be taken from him. So he wants us to have contentment in the bad times, but he also wants us to have contentment in the good times. Joy in Christ when you're living the dream. Verse 12, Paul says that he knows how to be content not only when he's in need, but when he has plenty, when, when he's eating like a king. I, I, okay, I think it's easy to see how Paul would urge us to have 
or I, I think it's easy to see how suffering threatens contentment, right? That, that makes sense to us, right? Suffering, suffering loss can threaten your contentment. But how does success and blessing threaten your joy and faith in Christ? I mean, if you're anything like me, when everything's going well in your life, you know, when you've, re- when, when you've received the, the, the salary bump and the church is growing and, and the next holiday to the beach is booked and the kids are sleeping through the night, that never happens. I feel totally content and happy in Christ when all, that, all that's happening. I feel like the Apostle Paul walking around here. But Paul seems to think that success and blessing, just like poverty and loss, can lead to joyless, contented, discontented Christians. I mean, I, th- I think we do get that blessing doesn't always make you a better Christian. Isn't it true that often the raise, the financial raise, will, will not lead people to be more giving, but more selfish with their money? Or the success in ministry, instead of humbling the minister, will often make us arrogant, and we'll actually point the success back to ourselves. You see, when you have nothing, you're tempted to seek happiness outside of Christ. But when you seemingly have everything, you're tempted to think you don't need Christ for happiness, aren't you? What, happen, what tends to happen is, is that the discontented poor, for instance, get angry. I wish I could have that. I want that. I need that. And I can't have it. But the discontented rich get indifferent. I have everything, and life is still banal. You see, both anger and apathy are produced by discontentment. Anger occurs when you, you can't get what you think will bring you happiness. And, and apathy or indifference occurs when you think you have everything and it still doesn't deliver on its promise of happiness. That's the problem with worshiping stuff. That, that's the problem with worshiping and putting your hope and your identity in things that are created that, and, and that aren't the creator. If stuff makes you feel valuable you're going to always struggle to feel like you're a valued person. You're going to always feel self-pity because it's always going to let you down. If, if stuff makes you feel secure, if you're, if you're looking at stuff or something outside of Christ for your security blanket, you know what? You're always going to be insecure. Recently, I was watching a movie uh, by, about a guy named J. Paul Getty. Do, you, do any of you guys know who J. Paul Getty is? Founder of Getty Oil Company. Uh, considered the richest man in the world in the 1960s. Okay? American, lived down in Surrey. So the, the plot of this movie focuses on his, this guy's favorite nephew. Who is kidnapped by a group of Italian uh, thugs. This is a true story. Who's grouped by, uh, kidnapped by a group of Italian thugs. And, and they're holding him to extort J. Paul Getty because he's incredibly rich. But, but Getty's this principled, elderly fellow. He won't give in to the extortioner, so, so he's not giving them an ounce of his money. And he sends, a, he sends one of his, his colleagues to go and kind of search out for the boy, try to rescue the boy without giving the money. But, but what happens throughout the movie, as time ticks on, they can't find the boy. 
and, and the mum of, of this kidnapped boy and, and the man who is tasked with finding him, who's played by Mark Wahlberg, they realize the only way to keep this beloved nephew alive is to give some money at least away. It's the only way to kind of extend his life because time is crunching down, we're not finding him, and they're going to kill him because they have nothing to lose. So there's a scene where Getty drops hundreds of thousands of pounds on a painting that will probably end up in his spare bedroom of his incredibly expensive mansion. And that's when the critical point of the movie arrives. Mark Wahlberg's character comes to Getty and says, listen, we're out of time. We have to give in. We have to give at least some of your money. And, and, and Getty tells him, sorry, it's been a really bad month for me. And I just can't spare it right now. And Wahlberg looks at him in this kind of harrowing moment in the movie and says, you're the richest man in the world. What is it going to take for you to feel secure? Getty pauses and resolutely looks at Wahlberg and says, more. The most successful people in the world won't have true contentment as long as they've never tasted on the, the, the riches of Jesus Christ. Don't let a season of blessing fool you into thinking you're actually content if you're not finding your joy in Christ. Does this sound daunting to you? I mean, it seems almost impossible to me. Paul commands us, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice? That seems like a pipe dream to me, doesn't it? He, can t- he, he, he commands us to have this settled happiness in Christ all the time, even when your heart is being ripped out from you, or even when life is a summer breeze. That's not easy. The command to be joyful in Christ is not easy because it penetrates not simply to your actions. Actions are easy. Come to church. It's fairly easy. But this command penetrates to your heart and to your motivations that no one can see. And that's because Jesus wants to be the Lord not just of your actions, not just of your lips, but of your heart. He wants wants the deepest part of your being, the part that gets to the, not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it. And that's why verse 13 is loaded with astonishing comfort and encouragement. I can do all this or all things in Christ who gives me strength. I read that that's the most misused verse in the Bible. I, I think it's the most used, mis, I think that's true. I think it's probably the most misused verse in the Bible, precisely because of this kind of thing. It's a really bad time for this not to work. There you go. These kind of memes you probably see on Facebook or something. As if this verse is telling me that I can be an Olympic, Olympic weightlifter, you know, the clean and jerks. 
If only I'd rely on Jesus. You see, this verse has really nothing to do with overcoming some incredible feat of strength or, or, or some heroic achievement. This isn't the verse you want to quote if you're hoping to go into an interview and crush it so you get that new job. This is not the verse for that. In one sense, this verse isn't at all what people think it is. But in reality, the promise and comfort of this verse is so much bigger than that. It's so much better than that. It's so much bigger than, you know, if you're playing basketball, and you, 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 I remember this in high school, going to the free throw line, boom, had, had to make a free throw to keep my team going into overtime. And I, I remember someone saying, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, which is great. I mean, I'm never going to deny a Bible verse, but it's so much bigger than that, okay? This is the verse you quote after the interview for that fulfilling job goes pear-shaped. This is the verse for that. This is the verse for you when you get the job of your dreams and you're tempted to make that job your identity and your ultimate joy. That's the verse for that. I can do all things. That is, I can be content and happy in Christ. No matter if I'm living in the pit or if I'm living in the clouds. And that, my friends, is not easy. But it's possible. Not by gritting your teeth and becoming emotionally numb to the world. Not by tapping into your own strength or feeling self-empowered. Not by ignoring the pain and being different, indifferent to the world around you. No, it's possible because you are in Christ. And in some mysterious way, Christ is the one that gives you strength. Inner strength. Remarkably, Christ gives you mysteriously this inner strength for what? To hold him as your greatest treasure. Even when you've lost every treasure in this world or gained every treasure in this world. I'll leave you with this because if you want to see what this looks like concretely in real life, what is, what is this kind of satisfaction in Jesus as the ultimate treasure, finding joy in Christ in thick and thin, what does that look like when it shows up in someone's life? Well, Paul gives us, oh, it's not there. I'll just read it for you. Paul gives us that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. If, if you have your Bibles open, it's probably on the page before it. Chapter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Paul shows us what this looks like in his own life. But whatever, whatever, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Let's pray.